welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I'm Tyler Smith. I'm David Bass. And thank you for listening. David. Yes. How are you? I'm good. We're, uh, you and I are back on our regular schedule. Indeed, yes. For the time being. For one week. <laughs> one week. <laughs> yes. Uh, because I'm but not I don't going... know why we even comment on that. To the listeners don't, I mean, well, they know you weren't here last week. Right. But listeners don't know what day we record. That's but true. But it does feel weird when we record a different day than our usual day. And so, like, we're back Well, on the, they'll be able to tell when we are off because we will not do a uh, movie, movie journal. journal bonus episode yeah. yeah so any week that we that there's a movie journal that means we're back on schedule exactly so it feels good anyway um i will mention You're- actually uh so i won't be here next week because i'm going to be in orlando at the international christian film festival uh i'm going to be giving a couple of talks but also i'm just going to be in the orlando area so if uh if any listeners would be interested in uh, like grabbing coffee or dinner or something like that just reach out to me tyler at battleship pretension.com i won't have a car but i can tell you uh, the uh, resort that i'm staying at and you can come me- uh, meet me at the uh, local bj's brew house or something but anyway uh it's the same place i've been for the last few years so i know all the restaurants around um anyway hey bj's is good you it is good a, uh, you can get a pizuki that's yes and uh, they have surprisingly good fries just the right amount of crisp uh and good ribs as well that's neither here nor there the what is here right now okay. is Mubi, which is a curated streaming service showing exceptional films from around the globe every day movie premieres a new film whether it's a timeless classic a cult favorite or an acclaimed masterpiece a movie you've been a movie you've been dying to see or one you've never heard of before there are always 30 different films to discover with Mubi, each and every film is hand selected so you'll never spend more time looking for something great to watch than actually watching something great it's like your own personal film festival streaming anytime anywhere currently available on movie is Zhang Yimou's The Flowers of War his, ep- his epic film about the Nanking Massacre starring Christian Bale also available is James Marsh's Project Nim which I haven't seen but you did and yeah, you I liked, liked it, it quite liked a bit it a lot. Yeah. Um, what is it about? Uh, it's about a, uh, a chimpanzee that was raised as a like by a family As yeah a half kid half pet i guess something like that yeah and the, like <laughs> some experiments were performed it's, it was like for, eight years ago <laughs> yeah and from what i from what i read like it's a very it's heartwarming and also deeply disturbing yeah, it's very uh, upsetting yeah yeah so definitely check that out on movie yeah and also james marsh has become like a more just accessible filmmaker over the years but i feel like Many yeah, years ago, accessible he, is a nice way of saying he makes he makes bad movies now. Well, you <laughs> but know, he made, well, he made the theory of everything, which he was, made the theory of everything. Bad. Yeah, but like uh, there there was a time because he made the King, right? Right. Which I don't know if you've ever seen the King. I haven't. Is that Gail Garcia Bernal? It is, and yeah. William Hurt, and it's a uh, very good movie, but also a very disturbing one. And then Project Nim once again seems like straightforward and very uh, uh, family friendly but also very disturbing but anyway so you can find these films available at Mubi and you can try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash Battleship that's M-U-B-I dot com slash Battleship for a whole month of great cinema for free and I want to tell you about tweakedaudio.com. You see, tweakedaudio.com is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They're so stylish. They're so colorful. I love them. Uh, they look great. They sound great. Tyler and I use them each and every day. Today, I was listening to a whole bunch of new stuff. I was listening to, uh, uh, Tyler, have you listened to Better Oblivion Community Center? 
Yes. You have? No. Oh. I, you would like it, I think, because <laughs> okay. it's Connor Oberst, a.k.a. Bright Eyes. Okay, yeah. Um, and Phoebe Bridgers. Uh, I don't know if you know her, hmm. but it's a band they have together. They did an NPR Tiny Desk concert. Have you ever watched any of those? No. It's what is... Bands or whatever just show up at the NPR offices and stand behind a desk and like play three songs. It's, oh. it's cute. All right. Uh, so they did a Tiny Desk concert. I listened to that. I listened to the new album by uh, Rico Nasty and... Um, Kenny Beats. Uh, I don't know who Kenny Beats is really, but I like Rico Nasty. Okay. I listened to the new YG song, Stop Snitching, which is apparently a Takashi 6 9 diss track. I don't know. I can't keep track of rap beefs. I can't do it. But this is the most, like... I feel like you're speaking in code. <laughs> like, when you, whenever you start talking about rap, I'm like, I don't know any of these terms. Uh, yeah, but uh, this uh, Stop Snitching, man, it's... Uh, uh, it's not just some... It's not a friendly beef. Uh, he's got some words for Takashi Six Nine. Really? Um, none of which I can say. Oh, because oh, yeah. I guess that makes sense. all of them have the N word. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> um, anyway, uh, but the point is, all this stuff. I spent a whole day today for ones not listening to music by people who had recently died, which mm-hmm. you know is a problem that I have. That I'm constantly making myself sad listening yeah. to people, music by people who died. Um, and it all sounded great in my tweakedaudio.com earbuds, and they're available to you. You can have the same experience. At a low, low price over at tweakedaudio.com. But if you use the offer code pretension at checkout, you get one third off that low, low price and no shipping charges. So please, everyone, go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with bite clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Tyler? Yes. Let's get into it, shall we? Indeed. We have a guest, a first-time guest. <laughs> yes. Uh, why don't you tell us but who not you the last time? We'll see. Um, yeah, uh, so, David, I couldn't help but notice that as you were saying we have a guest, you were really segmenting it like, we have a guest. <laughs> yeah. And here's why that's appropriate, because uh, our guest today is the author of Best Movie Year Ever. Right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I worried that last one was more of an ellipsis than a period. <laughs> uh, but anyway, it is uh, Brian Raftery. Am I yeah, saying that yeah. correct? Wow, okay. very good, man. Yeah. No, no one gets that name right ever. Yeah. Oh, it's Thank very, uh, even like right up until the moment, it's like, <laughs> I'm going to say Rafferty and I'm going to feel bad about it. Uh, why, is do that, pe- why do we default? Like, I don't know anyone named Rafferty. Why I, would my best friend growing up, is, his name is Cody Rafferty. And oh. Jerry Rafferty, of course. Yeah. Uh, you know, everyone's so. heard 70s musicians. So, yeah. Okay. But yeah, so. Uh, and I seem to recall, uh, not to, not that I'm looking to, uh, make fun of your name, but when I first, when I first saw it, I was like, okay, it's, it's not Rafferty note to self. Got to keep that in mind. It's, it's Raftery sort of like when you walk into a, a room and the ceilings are really high, it's like, it's very Raftery in here. <laughs> that's just like, okay, that's how it's going to, sure. that's how I'm going to remember. But anyway, <laughs> Brian, the author of best movie year ever. Welcome to Battleship Pretension. Thanks so much, guys. This is great. Thank you. (laughs) 
no, thank you. No, thank you. I'm here yeah. to respond to the YG Takashi nine six nine beef, right? That's why I'm here. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, do you beef have, ever, yeah. Yeah. Do you have any thoughts? You've talked I'm, about your book enough. <laughs> <laughs> we get it. Um, so okay. By way of uh, of an introduction to what we're partially well, we here to, get talk to know about. Brian first. <laughs> I will in a second. Oh, okay. Right. Um, so uh, I was on Facebook the other day, uh, and what was that? I've heard of it. <laughs> uh, probably all bad things, uh, and uh, rightfully so. Um, and as I was scrolling, I saw a promoted uh, I saw a promoted post talking about best movie year ever. Oh, really? Oh, and I good. was like, how, how, how exciting. I'm going to have the author of that uh, on the show. And uh, sure enough, and it's all about how 1999 is the best movie year ever. And uh, against my better judgment, I chose to click on the comments oh, no. for that post. Oh, boy. I wouldn't and, do that. Yeah. And, <laughs> and that's the thing is it was a promoted post. So it's yeah. like, okay, so this is for everybody. Yeah. Or, you know, everybody that fits the... The uh, what do you call it, algorithm? Uh, and sure enough, um, it would appear a lot of people do not agree with the assertion that 1999 is the best movie year ever. And uh, I found myself getting uh, defensive on your behalf oh, thank and you. mine. We our longest episode to date is with Josh Fadum, in which we recorded for four hours about 1999 <laughs> being the best movie year ever. Yeah. Uh, and so as is that I was a premium episode. No, no. Two thousand seven is our premium episode. Okay, so the nineteen ninety nine episode is free to listen to. Yeah, for four hours, you can put on Magnolia and then Ex- listen to the, <laughs> yeah. the podcast, and it will almost match up. It'll come close. Yeah, it's uh, just treated as like a commentary. Uh, well, but put anyway, Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet, ninety eight. I think it was. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so as I was looking, and everyone was just being really smug and shitty, and yeah. it just really frustrated me. And so then I thought, well, I'm, I never contribute to comment sections, but. <laughs> I simply, I just, nobody, I haven't seen anyone respond to me or anything, but I simply said, yes, it is the best movie year ever. Um, And so that is partially what what we're here to talk about today. Um, But first things first, yes, we want to know about you and how you arrived at the inevitable conclusion (laughs) that 1999 is the best movie year ever. I'm not, yeah, I think... I'm not necessarily co-signing Tyler here. I think there are other contenders, but sure. 1999 is the most important movie year to me. It's mm. the year I got my driver's license, which means it was the year that I was able to go see whatever movie I wanted to see. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it was a very formative year. But no, before we do that, okay, two things. When you call the book best movie year ever, you're kind of inviting people. Oh, to, I want people to argue. I mean, that's, that's the whole point. And yeah. it's not, you know, it's not a critical book. It's not a film. It's not a work of film criticism. It's, it's a lot of interviews with the filmmakers of that year. But I always, you know, in 1999, I graduated college and I went to work in entertainment weekly. I was an intern there. And that fall, they did a cover story called 1999, the year that changed movies before 1999 was over. So even back then, like 20 years ago, there was this feeling like, this has been kind of an extraordinary time. Um, mm-hmm. And so we knew when we named the book that, that it would absolutely irk people. But we also know if you put it in that um, Simpsons comic book guy, best yeah, yeah. movie year ever. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think most people, I mean, people who have been frustrated with me, I think they also, they don't come up to me and slap me in the face. They just come up and go, but what about this year, that year, which is exactly yeah. what you want because you want everyone to say, what about 1939? What about 1950? What about 2007? Mm-hmm. Um, so part of the, the part of the title was definitely to like push people to argue. Um, yeah. Yeah. But I do think it's a pretty great year. And it's like, and it's, and I have the same, I also have a personal, I mean, obviously I moved, 
moved to New York that year, I went to my first screenings and screening rooms, which when I was like 23 was absolutely the most amazing experience where it's mm-hmm. like, I can watch this. Uh, I can watch. She's all that for free in a screening room. And it? <laughs> it's nice and quiet. Um, but I also made that was, was that the, really your first. No, it wasn't. I think, I think okay. I'm trying with, I know the first screening I went to ever, like a real screening room screening was the Phantom Menace, which I somehow talked myself into seeing like five days before it came out, which I was a very resourceful 23 year old to get into that screening. Um, um, I'm going to tell you my, uh, this is getting way inside baseball, but that's my, fine. my first press screening was not at a screening room. It was at a multiplex. Cause that's how they do the sort of all media screenings here. My first press screening was Ivan Reitman's no strings attached. Oh wow. Starring Ashton Kutcher and Natalie Portman. My first screening room experience is a movie that no one remembers. Um, uh, and I'm draw- I'm drawing I'm blanking on the director's name, but it's called The Vanishing on Seventh Street. With oh, Hayden yeah. Christensen. Yeah, uh, it's a director I really like. He made Session Nine. He made The Machinist. Oh, what is yeah. that guy's oh, name? Brad, uh, Anderson? Brad Anderson. Yeah, yes, yeah, the yeah, Brad yeah. Anderson film. It's not yeah. bad. John Leguizamo, Hayden Christensen. It's a weird movie, but the, yeah, my I had very I had two very ignominious uh, first screening like be member of the press experiences. My first uh, was. Season of the Witch, directed by Dominic Senna, who made California with a K, the which film we just I, talked about. Yeah, on the, yeah which I did not journal. care for. <laughs> but uh, so you say you moved to New York in 1999. We'll get back to that. I have to ask the question I ask every first-time guest: Where are you from? I am born in New York, but then my parents moved to the suburbs of Philadelphia and it drives my wife crazy because I always try to make it sound like I'm a lifetime New Yorker where I'm like, well, I was born in New York. I mean, I have yeah. my New York city mm-hmm. street cred card. Um, so I'm from the outside, like the suburbs outside of Philadelphia. And then I grew up there. My parents were both newspaper people. So I grew up very aware. I mean, I read in the Philadelphia Inquirer every day, Carrie Rickey and Desmond Ryan were the film critics there. And I would like, I would read their reviews the Fridays they came out. We'd watch Cisco Niebuhr on the weekends. My mom had tons of movie books and tons of, we, she just watched old movies a lot so i grew up in a very sort of like media stuffed movie friendly family um and uh so i was gonna ask you how'd you get into movies but uh, you kind of answered the question it was pretty, i mean it really was it was like my i i liked baseball when i was growing up. i like the philadelphia phillies and i liked movies growing up and then i met pete rose when i was six or seven and he was such a dick that i think i <laughs> was like you know what forget sports i like movie stars because i'm sure they're much yeah, yeah, they're, yeah, they're yeah sure you've never uh, had an experience with i them. actually still stay with the phillies up to like 85 86 87 but um no i mean i really just i i, I think because my mom also my mom and dad had so many movie books and i was talking to someone today about like you know my mom had like a charter subscription to premiere and I got entertainment weekly and we got the New York times. So I read about movie making so much and I would read, you know, Ebert would do these movie guides and Leonard Malton had them too, but Ebert's mm-hmm. and they're both great, but you know, Ebert and the Philadelphia Inquirer and, and Malton all pushed out these, these movie guides. And my brother and I would read the, we would especially read the horror movie descriptions because we weren't allowed to watch those movies. So yeah. we would just like sit there and read these four paragraphs. You're like, what do you think altered states is about though? Like, what could this be like? It's got, <laughs> it's got violence adult situations and nudity so we know it's kind of grown like so even when I wasn't watching movies I was either absorbing them through very old issues of Mad Magazines uh, or like movie guides or I was watching them on the couch my mom would put on a Hitchcock movie in the middle of the day and I would just sit and watch some of it with her and I mean I watched Rear Window when I was like 
10. She doesn't remember this at all, but like I watched her window when I was like 10 or 11, which is like an insanely crazy movie to watch at that age. I mean, no matter how grown up you think you are, it's a pretty, it means a pretty intense film. And I think I just love sitting there and watching movies. And my mom knew so much about the history that she would go, Oh, that actor is in this and that. And I did like a fourth grade paper on Cary Grant when he died. Like I didn't know much about <laughs> Cary Grant. Yeah. I'd seen like two of his movies, but I was very much, I just loved Hollywood. So it was always like, I moved to New York and then a couple years ago we moved to LA and I'm just sort of like the two cities I grew up fascinated with are the two cities I wound up gravitating toward in my life. Um, I apologize to the listeners for the alarm outside. It's uh, which apparently has this hair trigger. <laughs> yeah. like the slightest thing um, makes it go off. A couple of things. I had a very, very different, very similar experience. My parents got delivered to them. The Catholic review. Oh, and that okay. would have weekly. <laughs> it would have like capsule reviews of movies that were out, but it would also have this movie is inappropriate right. because it has this, <laughs> yeah. this and this, yeah. which was the like I gotta, I gotta see that. Mm-hmm. I gotta see uh, Raising Cain, yes, which yeah, I never yeah. saw, but it was like oh, Raising Cain's kind of fun, yeah. Uh, but I was like, oh, the Catholic review really wants to warm me away from this. I gotta see Raising Cain. You can read uh, all about Raising Cain in Cinematic Suffering: right. Reviews of Terrible Movies by me, oh, okay. Tyler Smith, um, <laughs> uh, and then. This alarm is driving me crazy, and that's why I can't remember what the other thing I was going to say was. I think it's a Catholic review. They've heard you talking about raising Cain, and they're coming in to swoop in. Like you still can't. It's still not appropriate. Yeah, once uh, a Catholic, always a Catholic, oh, yeah. David. Oh, um, so you know, you mentioned Rear Window. Uh, one of my favorite things. So I'm, I've lived in Los Angeles for 14 years now, and I work somewhat in the industry. And also because of being a member of the press, I get to go onto lots yeah. a lot and has not lost its luster for me. No, I oh still love movie lots. And yeah, I, a, a lot of them, including Paramount, which is the oldest, it's the only one still in Hollywood and it's the old RKO lot. And it has a lot what a lot of the lot lots will do outside of each soundstage. It has a plaque. That's like, here's the notable stuff that was shot here. So, you know, you're like, this is where they shot rear windows. when we think of it. Cause rear window was that, that entire, sort of courtyard they constructed on a set was uh, on a soundstage was constructed on the Paramount lot and it's and it's great to be standing there and also weird to be like oh and then 30 years later they shot episodes of Angel here right like in the same soundstage no I mean I did a bunch of interviews for the book on like the Fox lot or the Paramount lot and every time I'd be finished I would just be like how can I make an excuse to wander I mean I've been coming out here for like 20 years to interview people and and for for writing about movies and stuff but like I never get if if I get to the point where I'm jaded by the lots I should just move out of here because I I live in Burbank now, so when I drive by the Warner Brothers lot, I'm so like 13 again. I'm like, that's where they make the motion pictures, kids. It's like, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, there's a water tower. My kids only know that from Animaniacs, but like, yeah. it's ex- it really is exciting. And the Paramount lot is so awesome because the last time I went, I had just rewatched Sunset Boulevard, and I totally forgot that like, oh yeah, I think the bungalows that they that they use in that movie are actually on the Paramount lot. And I was walking by, I was like, even if I'm not right, I think I'm right near where they shot Sunset Boulevard. It was so fun to walk by that. I love yeah, the lot experience is great, and it's also like. It's a, it's a great place to go work for a day if you're like doing interviews because it's like mm-hmm. you get you get nice parking when you're interviewing a big executive and they you get lots of water bottles it's it's, it's yeah. a great experience yeah well you yeah. can park at the Paramount lot you can they have a sunken part of the Paramount lot that is also a water tank oh it's great is, yeah yeah uh, I want to say it was used it was probably used for a bunch of stuff but the first one that comes to mind I think Star Trek four when they're in the ocean mm, right mm-hmm. because Star Trek is a Paramount movie so I think that's the one I always that makes go sense, to yeah. but yeah you can most of the time it's like this sunken part of the parking lot but then they can empty it out and fill it with water and I once when I was a PA working on the Paramount lot I once saw Johnny Knoxville making Jackass 2 
uh, clearly on a break from set, just sitting at the edge of that like water tank, looking sad. Oh my gosh, <laughs> he was making a classic movie though. I do actually Jackass two and Jackass. I would never watch the show that much, but those two movies were two of the most fun in theater experiences I had. Like in the in the 20, in this new century, I never saw the second one. There's a third one too, isn't there? They're all. They're, I had to say they're all pretty fun. I mean, they're, <laughs> they're 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 like I made a terrible mistake. Like my daughter was way too young on YouTube. I put up the clip from the first one where they go, oh, they go like zip lining over the alligator tank with like mm-hmm. the meat hanging out from their underwear and I was like right. why am I showing this to my daughter she thought it was hilarious yeah. but well, yeah. uh, she d- did not want to go anywhere near an alligator tank at that point so maybe it's, it's for the best good preventive lesson I guess but yeah uh, I, I also movies. I ended up meeting this, the jackass guys for real at a later PA gig. I was a PA. Uh, I was a PA at a place that did motion capture for video games, and they made a Jackass video game in like oh 2007. Wow! I think I barely remember that. Sounds yeah, yeah, yeah. And so they did some of the motion capture there, and those guys like they walk around on guard all the time. Like they're like walking around like covering their nuts. Of because course, they, yeah. <laughs> um, well, they watched you? the first Jackass movie. They know what happens. Yeah. yeah. But I then, uh, but I did get to see Steve-O's full back tattoo of himself in oh, person because yeah. they were doing. He was like dripping sweat because they're doing all this stuff in mocap and then so he hadn't happened to take a cigarette break at the same time i did and he came on just took his shirt off because he was covered in sweat and i was like oh there it is <laughs> anyway that's not a 1999 movie none of that is uh, um how do we how do we pivot <laughs> tyler or ryan how do we pivot into the uh so okay so you oh, I forgot what I was gonna say. as you were as you were you know a big movie fan you've been writing about movies for a long time um how did you arrive at this subject at this topic? Was it because like, okay, 2019, we're coming up on 20 years or did it just kind of happen just on its own? And it was a coincidence kind of both. Cause I, so the book originally in 2016, I started for whatever reason, I started really thinking about Y2K cause mm. I think I was pretty sure the world was going to end in 2016. I'm not sure what happened mm. in 2016. <laughs> was there a big national, uh, but I really was thinking well, about Cubs. Won. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but I really <laughs> was, about that. I was really thinking about like, the, cause there was a lot of sort of apocalyptic, culture kind of coming back so i was thinking about 1999 and i was thinking about well if you look at all those events if you look at what happened that year whether it's uh columbine or whether it's napster or whether it's the you know the battle in seattle or whether it's the movies or whether it's eminem britney spears like it just felt like a really vibrant pop culture year so originally i was going to just do a book where i write about that i write about trump who ran in 99 or announced he's going to run in 99 and like mm-hmm. all these kind of weird events that happened and then an editor simon and schuster just out of blue was like hey you've you've interviewed mike judge before you've interviewed david fincher um and i know you're doing a 1999 book proposal would you want to just do it on the movies and eventually we sort of reached this point where i was like oh because he, he's a really smart guy he's like you can write about all these things about the late 90s and what was going on and these weird this weird sort of rush toward y2k and you can use the movies and so that's what the book became it became let's talk to as many filmmakers in that year as possible, as many actors, as many executives, and sort of talk about the end of the 90s, both in terms of Hollywood and in terms of sort of America and where the country was, which sounds very lofty and pretentious, but it really, mm-hmm. the more I looked at these movies, I think the reason, one of the reasons they resonated so much at the time is that you can really see a lot of like late 20th century concerns popping up in these yeah. movies. And they're also, it's an exceptionally good year of movies. I mean, like the list is insane. And every time I would tell someone, well, these are the movies from that year, the list would change every time and people, would, it's like, even like the 18th or 19th best movie from that year is pretty yeah. great. I mean, the movies I had to cut from the book are like American movie, which is in any of the year American movie is a book it's like yeah so well, the, I, I also found that like as I like 
because I yeah I experienced all these great because there were great mainstream you know yeah the fact that I could get my driver's license and go to the movies and I was happening to see Three Kings oh my gosh you yeah. know like, Three Kings was amazing that year yeah um, but as I've gotten older my tastes have gotten more. I don't know, obscure, pretentious, esoteric, whatever. I still find that, like, oh, Adam McGowan's Felicia's Journey came out in 1999. Oh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. And Claire yeah. Beau Travail came yeah. out in 1999. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, it's, the deeper I go, it's still a great year. Yeah, it's, uh, so, I was 17 mm. in 1999, and so, in the years since, when I was thinking about how great that movie year was, I also thought, yeah, you were also 17. Like that, and Mm -hmm. so you're a movie lover at 17. Every movie you see, not every movie, but you're falling in love with movies. You're seeing movies that you haven't, that you previously probably probably would have thought were boring, and now you love them. Yeah. Um, So it probably isn't that great of a year. But as time has gone on, and actually, and as David was saying, like as my appreciation for film deepened, I came to realize, like, no, 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 this is, if not the best movie year. Certainly a special movie yeah. here. It's this odd little cross section of old like masters like Stanley Kubrick, mm-hmm. but then also Martin Scorsese making Bringing Out the Dead, yeah. um, Mike Lee with Topsy Turvy, uh, which I you know I adore. So you have that, but then you also have the Sixth Sense and being John Malkovich and. Um, uh, the Matrix, you know, films that, that Matrix wasn't the Wachowski's first film, sure. nor was uh, Sixth Sense uh, M. Night Shyamalan's first film. But like these movies that just did very well. It's financially. a new class to a filmmaker. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. You, you get this weird thing. And then you've got like smaller, lesser known movies by Woody Allen that are mm-hmm. nonetheless marvelous. You have this crazy ass anomaly of the straight story. I know. Uh, oh, yeah. From David Lynch. Like it's just this. It Not only is it a thing when. Uh, a year when established filmmakers are making movies, but when they seem to be some of them taking risks um, and doing something very different than what they usually do. Like, and so it's, it's just fascinating to look at that. And yeah, as you said, like you get to number 25 and it's still a movie that many people will just love. Yeah. Um, and and so as I was looking at that Facebook thing and people were like, what about 1939? And then they list like six movies. Like right. granted wizard of Oz, Mr. Smith goes to Washington, gone with the wind. Sure. That's fine. No, no problem <laughs> but there. Th- isn't this recency bias on your part? Like aren't there probably are 30 great 19- 1939 movies. Probably. But that- why didn't they say they listed seven of them? Because they weren't the people who were arguing this weren't alive then. And maybe in what is that? Uh, 80 years sure. maybe people will only be able to be on Facebook those, those, who, those who live through 1939 might not <laughs> yeah. be on Facebook at this that's, point too. That's, that's, that's true, true. In, in the year uh, 20 uh, I'm doing the math uh, 2059 okay. or whatever maybe people won't be able to because I, yeah. I'm, I'm going to be dead in 2059 and so um, if, if, every, if I have my druthers um, <laughs> then yes you will be dead by uh, yeah so maybe so I I don't know I know we're talking about 1999 but I, do, yeah. I just want to say it's not not every one of those movies is going to be remembered in 80 years I'm not saying that's right oh sure I'm, yeah I'm just saying these other years have good uh, pedigree. Oh, undoubtedly, yes. But I and, I and that's why I think twenty years out, I think it's okay. We've we now have two full decades of movies that have come out since then, and it also means that we've seen the impact that the movies of nineteen ninety nine. Right. We've seen 
what the impact that those have had. Um, And so you look at a movie like Blair Witch Project, which kicked off maybe not initially but certainly eventually like the idea of of found footage horror is well established at this point and that was kicked off by Blair Witch Project and oh absolutely yeah and yeah it's just uh certainly to people okay I think it probably is recency bias but I also think that in the film nerd community there's a tendency to be suspicious of any claim of greatness in the last 30 or 40 years like 39 is well established yeah. anything is like well you can't you can't know unless you're like 50 years out well there was like also, i think we can i mean there was some i mean it's like there was some resistance especially in the, in the in the mid to late 80s which is when i first as very young started reading about this idea of the 70s as being the greatest decade there was mm-hmm. pushback against that from some people who were sure. older who was saying the 70s is I mean the star wars and jaws decade like that was the junkiest yeah. decade now for me it's like the 70s, I would say the 40s, the 70s, and 90s are my three favorite decades. I mean, mm-hmm. I think those are the eras. So, you know, you can certainly look at, you can pull any year from those decades and find interesting stuff. But I like the fact that when people start debating what year it is, what the, their favorite movie year is, it's a mix of the movies were great, but also it's a mix of like where they were personally in their sure. lives for a lot of them, you know? And I think that's why, you know, certainly a lot of people I talk to are like, what about 94? Which I understand, they're around my age. Or what about, there's a lot of people who are like, oh, 82, 84, who are the kids who sort of loved Amblin coming up. Mm-hmm. But, you know, for me, it's like I gave it that title because I do think for me and for people who are my age, that was the closest at that moment we got to that same thrill of the entire 70s. It's like and you had this collision of generations. You had, mm-hmm. you know, it was like Kubrick and George Lucas and Terrence Malick. I mean, Thin Red Line was technically end of 98, but yeah. he basically came out in 99. And then you have and you mentioned all these new filmmakers, but also like there's this insane middle class. It's like Michael Mann and Soderbergh and Fincher and, yeah. and all these directors who had been established for a while, but they, that year they got so much money to do whatever they wanted. Like it's crazy. It's like, yeah. they got this full, everyone got this permission slip. It's like, what is your crazy idea? Okay. Here's a little bit of pushback, but we're probably going to give you the money you want for it. And you're probably going to be able to release it and make it mostly the way you want to, which is amazing. And that didn't even happen that much in the seventies or sixties, you know? Yeah. And you also got experiments. I'm only now thinking of Time Code, mm. which is a film that I loved at the time, and I think I still have tremendous respect for. Um, and yeah, that was like you said; these movies are green lit in a way. That you're just like, what money did you expect to make off yeah. of this studio yeah. guy? I mean, the insiders like a, I mean, the insider yeah. is you know Joe Roth, the head of Disney, which was a very different Disney than we know now. They used to do a lot more live action, grown up movies, but you know, it's a movie made by a company that had just merged with ABC a few years and it's like it's a movie made by the company that owns ABC criticizing CBS and also taking on the tobacco industry and it's R-rated it costs something like 60 to 70 million dollars it's going to take four to five months to shoot in multiple countries by the way you will never get a sequel to The Insider you will never get yeah. uh, you will not be able to make t-shirts of like Al Pacino on the phone on the beach it's like <laughs> and, and Joe Roth at Disney was like all right, go for it. You know what I mean? It's like, it wasn't, yeah. and maybe he wanted an Oscar nomination and it wound up getting them. Maybe he wanted the glory of making, but it's like, they made these movies that were just insane. They were just beyond a gamble at this point to make a movie where you're going to take Russell Crowe, who was like the sexy LA confidential guy and be like, here, eat a bunch of hamburgers and drink whiskey for two months and age 20 years and look like everyone's yeah. dad. And you're going to, this is the movie you're going to make and put it out at the end of the year for your big push. It's insane. It's insane. And then the next year it's like, okay, lose that weight. <laughs> Get yeah. sexy again. Here's your Oscar. In all fairness, he's been he was pretty good at yo-yoing at that point. Yeah, but that was definitely, yeah. yeah. I mean, he was like, that's a huge risk. I don't know what the insider would be now. I mean, 
mean, it's like I was thinking of it because there's all this um, Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos stuff right now as part mm-hmm. of the culture, and that book is so good, and there's the HBO documentary. But I think that's how that story would be told now. No one is going to make they are going to make an Elizabeth Holmes movie. It's not going to be a seventy million dollar right. Disney movie where they give. Yeah. I, I don't know if it's Adam McKay, but they're not going to give him. I mean, Vice is kind of weirdly almost like The Insider, where it's yeah, kind of except, uh, terrible. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a little <laughs> less money and definitely um, not made with the kind of. Michael Mann patience. I, I really like Adam McKay a lot. I did not like Vice at all, but mm-hmm. um, but I do think I I did admire the spirit in which he was making that, which is like I didn't. I watched that movie and I was like, this did not seem to have a lot of notes. You know what I mean? It didn't feel like it came out of like the note machine that you see a lot of studios in now. Um, well, I mean that's um, that's Anna Perna. I mean that's yeah. and uh, Megan Ellison. She is great at doing that, yeah. but also is apparently uh, the company is apparently losing tons of money. So it's sad. Yeah, I mean they put out great movies that like me and my friends. <laughs> and then it's about it. I don't know if yeah, they're no. like really punctuating the puncturing the consciousness in a big way. But you know, these I do think that as much as we all as movie fans we're all conditioned to like see the movie executives as the man and to be like, oh yeah. they're always and it is the most fun stories in the book are like David Venture fighting with Fox or David O. Russell trying to convince Warner Brothers that Three Kings isn't a racist movie. Um, a lot of these executives took just were just like they felt indebted to not only make money, but they needed to make good movies. They felt an obligation to it. And I think it's because they had gone through the sixties and seventies and that had mm-hmm. been the, that had been the, the, the era in which they had sparked the movies the same way we all kind of did in the late nineties. And they were like, I want to make movies that are like easy rider or the graduate. Mm-hmm. And these were executives who had seen the graduate easy riser, easy rider. And sometimes I don't know if a lot, some modern executives even care about movies that are more than five years old at this point. Um, so that it was exciting and everyone got to do what they wanted to do for the most part. That reminds me of that, uh, there's that great scene in the player where all the executives are talking about when was the last time we went to see a movie and Tim Robbins is like, I went to see the bicycle thieves and they're like, Oh, I love the bicycle thieves, but they don't watch movies. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And well, of course they also called it the bicycle thief. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, so I did have a, a question because it's, there's something interesting about the fact that these films came out, that this special moment happened in 1999 mm. specifically yeah. like right before Y2K as you were saying do you think that, that the fact that it's at the end of not only a decade but a millennium um, do you think that that either directly or indirectly like influenced uh, the people making it whether it be the studios or the directors like I not necessarily I gotta get this in before the world ends mm. but like like I want a movie that sort of reflects where we are at the end of of the the nine the nineteen hundreds or the thousands. Well, I mean, the the part of me and you and you both know too. It's the, the, who knows how the movie development process works, and that nothing you know. It's like it takes years, and some of these movies take years. And doing the reporting and realizing that like these movies were could have arrived in ninety eight or two thousand things. Well, no, this is you know this this is a coincidence, but. I don't know if it is a coincidence. I mean, I do think at a certain point there are certain things going on subliminally in the culture. And I do think, I think it was when I interviewed Steven Soderbergh for the book, he's like, you know, artists have their antennas up and sometimes you can't kind of see what they're seeing for a long time. But certainly the fact that you had so many movies that were playing out the same ideas in different ways. I mean, if you look at um, Office Space, Fight Club and The Matrix and even American Beauty it's like okay it's four movies about guys mostly younger middle aged guys in these white collar jobs who are trying to push themselves out to find some sort of meaning or existence Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's a coincidence I mean I don't know if 
you know, being John Malkovich and Boys Don't Cry, which both address transgender issues in their own ways. People forget that Cameron Diaz sort of starts yeah. starts articulating that. I don't know if that's a coincidence. I don't know if people were really. I think when you look at it's impossible to look at anything now pre or post nine eleven without feeling like oh this is a drag to put these parameters on it, but. It does feel like pre 9-11, it's like it was a navel gazy time. And that whole idea of like, look, this millennium, is, it just literally does not happen every year. It's like this is a huge deal. No one knows what's going on. And on top of it, there have been these reports since at least the mid-90s that we had made some huge mistake and miscalculation and that the lights were going to go out in, in the best case scenario or the planes were going to come down. I mean, there really were, if you look at Y2K coverage, um, there really were a lot of people who were really, really scared by this. And it's interesting now, maybe you guys could speak to this. I mean, it's really interesting to me. I don't know. I sort of forgotten that how much of a, of an evangelical movement parts of Y2K, it was sort of co-opted in some ways. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, Jerry Falwell made this big instructional tape and it was, yeah. and it really was like, they were kind of leading that charge before it even became kind of a mainstream concern, which is, which is really interesting, but I don't. So I don't know if I don't know if I don't know if any if any. I, yes, it's a coincidence because the Wachowskis wrote the Matrix years earlier. Yeah. Kimberly Pierce was trying to make Boys Don't Cry since ninety four ninety five. But I do sort of think it's more fun to look at these movies from this distance and say this can't be a coincidence. I mean, something yeah. this had to happen for a reason, and this did happen for a reason. Yeah, uh, in the um, in my film history course that I that I teach, um, I. <laughs> Just for uh, just for my own sanity, I, I split up all of film history into four periods, yeah. which is or eras. There's the silent era, the classic era, the modern era, and the digital era. And so, uh, and digital eras, I have as vaguely like 1990-ish to mm. the present. Uh, and and in talking about the 90s, um, one of the things that I say I I call it the the age of awareness mm. because that was the thing that you heard all the time is people like we're raising awareness. Mm. And you also saw I think, you know, Gen X sort of now they're now adults and they now care about certain things. So you saw movies that dealt with the AIDS crisis and mm-hmm. inner city crime and uh, racial uh, inequality and all that because of, you know, Rodney King. And so, and so you, and you had filmmakers do uh, making films to accommodate that. And, uh, and so I do think that, yeah, it sort of culminates as like, okay, well, if you're, if this whole decade is all about people being aware of a de- of themselves and of deeper issues. And in some cases, of movie making itself, you know, mm. you get movies like Scream, which shows a great deal of awareness. Yeah, it does make sense that it would all culminate in the last year of that decade yeah. to have this really interesting kind of introspective uh, uh, attitude. Um, and then it's it's always interesting to look at the Oscars of any given year. Yeah, and you see <laughs> that like the uh, the uh, the best the five best picture nominees for this amazing year that we're talking about. Cider House Rules, right? Yeah, sure. The Green Mile, <laughs> yeah. American Beauty, mm-hmm. The Insider, and The Sixth Sense. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I always thought it was kind of cool that they nominated The Sixth Sense. Yeah. Um, and I'm a huge fan of The Insider, but it's also standard Best Picture material. And then American Beauty was just a, a foregone conclusion as the winner. Um, but like you've, you look back now and just like. And David, you didn't like Green Mile at the time. That's but right. you did like Cider House Rules more at the time than you and did. And I now. liked American Beauty at the time, which yeah, I so did I. Now. Yeah. Which reminds me of something I was gonna say earlier is I remember reading uh, the Riverfront Times, which is the uh it's and still is the free uh weekly uh like alt weekly in St. Louis, uh Missouri where I grew up. Uh and it was what you were talking about at the end of nineteen ninety nine, someone like 
reflecting, like, look at what a great year this is, and they named all these movies named. Well, we haven't even named yet South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut. Oh, gosh, right. I love that movie. On the list. Yeah. Uh, and then, but then this critic was like, uh, but I'm not including American Beauty. I'm, uh, like, everyone loved American Beauty, and this, and this critic was the first one, <laughs> because the internet wasn't, I wasn't really on the internet that much yet. I wasn't used to contrarianism, contrarianism and it, like, blew my mind. I was like, how can this <laughs> yeah. person not like American Beauty? And, it's, yeah. uh, and, like, it's so funny now that it, it only took me a few years to revisit it and realize that I don't think it, uh, it holds I, up very well. I genuinely think you and I were at the perfect age for that to be a mind-blowing movie. You know, I saw it several times in the theater. It's like, man, this is really, like... You know, really questioning things because you were sixteen, you were seventeen. That's yeah. like that's uh, pretty much a good age to be like the yeah. suburbs are not what they yeah. seem. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, yeah. and I, I had a weird experience with American Beauty, and I feel I mean I interviewed Alan Ball and Sam Mendes and Thora Birch for the book, and they were all delightful. I didn't interview Kevin Spacey, and it was <laughs> this this book was reported during the Weinstein Spacey oh, thing, wow. which changed some. There were a couple American Beauty people who and, wound uh, up canceling their interviews, I think, because they didn't want to. Um, of course, unfortunately, you couldn't interview Conrad Hall, which I think is I know, the best yeah. part of the movie. Oh, it is the best. Mm-hmm. Part. But you know, I saw I, when I was at Entertainment Weekly that year. They were so, and I've I have reminded people who I love and respect dearly who have turned on American Beauty. I'm like, you were in the hallway talking about how great this movie was. So I went to a screening like two weeks before it opened, and I'd taken my friend, and I was like, I've heard this movie is amazing, and we sat there and we just kind of laughed like this is so. I just I was like, this is so lame, um, and I really didn't like it. And you know, I have to say, I'd, I watched all these movies again just for research, like commentary tracks, or just rewatching and trying to live with them, and I. I watched American Beauty a lot and I was kind of dreading it and I watch it now and I'm like I still don't love this movie but you know it was definitely if you look at it now in 2019 it's like this is a movie that was actually kind of pretty spot on like I thought it was so broad and comedic but it's like the idea that you're going to have these teenagers who are going to talk about joke about violence and live through their screens and you're going to have this neo-nazi living next door in this very pristine (laughs) suburb and you're going to have Kevin Spacey playing a skeevy middle-aged guy it's like (laughs) hmm this movie was actually a little bit more ahead of its time you know it's like but also it is a great looking movie and I think that movie yeah. what everyone was kind of uh, I was just talking about to say with someone but like people were you know some people the people who were sneering at it at the time and there weren't a lot because I felt like I was alone and just like mm-hmm. but they were like oh it's just a TV movie and people are watching on these new Oscar screeners and that's why hmm. but if you look at the look of that movie like it does so it, it, it's a great small screen slash big screen movie and I do think if you look at some of the prestige TV shows that came it's like you can oh, see yeah. Conrad Hall's visuals I mean the way sure. stuff's framed I mean it really did I think that movie is beautifully, beautifully put together. Yeah. And I, and even now the Thomas Newman score is so replayed, but like it works perfectly in that movie. Yeah. Um, and there's some, I, you know, I've even come around on the bag scene only because I'm like, you know what? When I was that age, I said some really stupid stuff too. <laughs> I, that is what a stupid yeah. teenager who's a stoner who thinks things are profound will say. And as I get older and more new agey in my life, I'm like, you know, sometimes a floating bag maybe really is kind of beautiful. Um, and I wouldn't if you if I told some of my friends that I would be twenty years later, I'd be kind of reversing myself on American Beauty. They would not believe it in nineteen ninety nine because I was so anti it. Um, Cider House Rules um, and Green Mile I never liked, and I just can't. I tried to watch Green. I had to watch Green Mile again for this and Cider House Rules, and I was just like, I'm, I'm not going to put. I'm not, I can't. I can't deal with these movies right now. Well, I, I guess maybe it's just the. Uh the the pro choice activist and me still like center yeah. rules. It's, you know, um, it, is, it, it lost best adaptive screenplay to election, which to me is like that's that's a Metallica Jethro Tull thing. It's like a, a, a well, I mean, no, it actually or one. Sorry, sorry, yeah, 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 it yeah. defeated election yeah. for it, which to me it is, is like insane. Like election yeah. is like one of the best adaptive screenplays I think ever. I mm-hmm. love that movie so much, and for that to go to Cider House Rules is so weird. And um, as much as I, and as much as I love Michael Caine in general, yes, I think his performance is fine in the movie, but that. 
was a strong year for supporting actor. Yeah. You had Tom Cruise, you yeah. had Jude Law, you had Haley Joel Osment, and you had, you know, Green Mile's not great, but I do really appreciate Michael Clark Duncan's, like, commitment to his performance. Yeah. And, yeah, like, I think the least deserving uh, guy actually won that year. Yeah, they were trying um, to make up for not giving it to him for Jaws of Revenge. It was a classic yeah, makeup yeah. Oscar. No, yeah. I mean, all those categories, you can go all through all those categories and, and knock out two or three. It's like, how did Reese Witherspoon not get nominated? How did, I mean, even yeah. Matthew Broderick, it's like, how did Norton or Pitt not get nominated? Like, you know, I don't yeah. know which category you put them in, but like, those are really good performances. Helena Bonham Carter, that's a great performance. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a, I do think Cruise should have won. Like, 1999 is ultimate, is like, you know, Tom Cruise is kind of a supporting character in the whole book because he's, he had a very, I mean, between Eyes Wide Shut and Magnolia, it's like, yeah, you know, I've talked to people who are really young who only know Tom Cruise as a guy who hangs on helicopters and <laughs> yeah, lives sure. in a giant, I don't know, sort of actual bubble made of gold or whatever. But that was a huge risk for him to make those two movies. Oh, and yeah. they're, they're movies that were so anti the Tom Cruise brand at that time. It's like they're yeah. movies about sex and they're dark and they're and they're emotionally violent. And it's like it was crazy that he did that. And it, it would appear that it jarred him into action for the rest I of his know. life. I mean, he did. Cl- so he does. He does collapse. He does it, which is kind of an, a thriller drama hybrid. But yeah, yeah, he never really quite goes back to that. I mean, I think he was trying. I think I have a lot of. I don't know how much time you guys have. I love Tom Cruise. I can talk about it forever. But I do mm-hmm. think he took those two movies and tried to tried to improve the way he made action movies. Like if you look at War of the Worlds and Minority Report, I think mm-hmm. he's better in them than he was in, say, I don't know. Um, you know, any of the early night, like days of thunder or something like, I think sure. he really was trying, I think okay. he learned a lot about performance, but I just think he was never going to make like why I think I'm sure after Magnolia, he was like, this was fun. This movie did not make $250 million on like all my other no. movies. So why am I even doing this? And why am I going to spend two years with Stanley Kubrick in London <laughs> for, for a movie where it ends in divorce ultimately, <laughs> which, which is actually a, a funny part of Michael Caine's uh, best supporting actor win speech where he, he goes through is very gracious talking about yeah. all the other nominees. And then he says, Tom Cruise, he goes, oh, do you have any idea what supporting actors get paid? Yeah. <laughs> and it was very funny. Um, uh, a couple of thoughts I had about, you mentioned, yeah, I was 16. I turned 17 at the end of 1999. Um, and I was a budding cinephile. Yeah. But there were a couple of things that I was reminded of that made me realize I was a bit further along. I was already further along than the mainstream. Sure. First off, my parents and their friends were scandalized by Kevin Spacey masturbating at the beginning of American Beauty. Mm. And I was like, clearly you guys have not been renting indie movies and yeah. like American indies. I've seen so many guys masturbating in movies over the past few years. And the other thing I remember... Just because, in the theater. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah me, and, me, me and Paul Rubens and Fred nice. Willard uh, going to the movies together. <laughs> um, and the other thing, Tyler, you mentioned I had forgotten that Sixth Sense was nominated for Best Picture. I remember a girl in my drama club in high school being like, the weekend before the Oscars, being like, well, obviously Sixth Sense is going to win. Oh, yeah. It's obvious. Mm. Whereas I was already savvy enough to know, like, no, the nomination is the win for the Sixth yeah, Sense. It's yeah, not going to yeah. win Best Picture. But yeah. they were like, yeah. it, it made the most money of any of the movies. Yeah. I had, I had my, uh, my Oscar pool uh, at the time, back before we did our uh, Fantasy Awards draft. Yeah. Um, and so, like, all my friends were over, and everyone threw in, like, 50 cents a category. Uh, and then if, if no one had the winner in a category, they just carried over to the next one. And similarly... I, 
yes, yeah, six cents. Of course, your friend would say six cents. It's the only one they saw, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And similarly, uh, so, like I was the only person in my group of friends that went for Michael Caine because I knew how the actor, how the Oscars <laughs> worked. Everyone else was like, obviously, it's going to be Haley Joel Osment. Obviously, it's the only one they saw. Yeah. And so uh, when I won, and I just like, <laughs> and I, I just like pulled You're in like, all these. Yeah. The opening exactly. Titles. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and and a friend was like, how the it's like how the fuck did you know that? It's like because I. Because he's the older guy and he hasn't won in a while, so yeah, yeah it's yeah. Uh, it's fun being it, a know-it-all asshole. I think what you spoke to is really interesting, and I haven't thought about this in a while. But why American Beauty won, and I think it was because by the end of the nineties, there, there was all this momentum in the indie community. I think maybe Academy voters were like, "Well, we have to really kind of catch up with this." And American Beauty is clearly like, "Of oh, that, this is an edgy, edgy movie." And I think had that movie come out in like. 89 it probably would have seemed a lot more shocking to have kevin spacey masturbating in the shower um but i do think that now i think by 99 i think for me at that point i was 23 i was like this is not like i've seen edgier stuff yeah i've seen bad lieutenant yeah i've seen bad (laughs) yeah unfortunately i had seen but yeah i had seen bad lieutenant actually now i'm thinking about i'm like oh yeah i saw those 18 movies where harvey Keitel got naked in the mid 90s (laughs) you did a lot of those i feel like um no i mean i just i felt like they were like this this was the i think they thought that was the most the movie with the most integrity that year um but it is weird like it was it was also the whole fascinating thing about American Beauty is that it was the same year it was a year after Harvey and DreamWorks had 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 that huge public like Shakespeare in Love Saving Private Ryan kerfuffle and Hollywood really turned against I mean Mm -hmm. Hollywood turned against Harvey in a big way two years ago but 99 was definitely like a bad year for him like Miramax did not literally and figuratively did not get Blair Witch. They didn't understand it. They didn't buy it at Sundance. They bought Happy Texas for ten million dollars, which right. is a crazy, crazy least. I mean, that's like such a ridiculous choice. Um, and you know, they didn't have a great. They had She's All That, which was a huge hit, and they had Ripley, which is a beautiful movie, which I love, but mm-hmm. that Harvey couldn't get the Oscar momentum for. And I think, I think there was a little bit of like, screw Harvey. We are not giving. We are not giving Cider House Rules best picture. We're not giving the Miramax movie best picture. It's like, and we're giving it to Stevens Company. Because I, I think I do think American Beauty had its admirers, but I think there's also that was one of the first years where you could really see the Oscar politics yeah. playing out in the press. Those guys, those two companies, were going out at each other in the press. It's kind of a fascinating. I cut all that from the book because I feel like Oscar stuff can be a little inside baseball sometimes. But it was really to go back to those clips and be like, oh, this was kind of a nasty battle in the late '90s for these awards. And I do think, given how we've just been talking about the '90s, if you look at the best pictures of the '90s. You've got the best picture Dan- winners. The best picture winners. Yeah. You've got Dances with Wolves. Okay. Then you have like Silence of the Lambs. Surprising. Yeah. Unforgiven. Kind of surprising. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Schindler's List. Not surprising. Forrest Gump. Braveheart. English Patient. Titanic. Yeah. And then like, okay, well, they go a little bit off with Shakespeare in Love, but even then, not that out of the way. But like for, for a decade that is as edgy as the 90s are they they go with a lot of like big historical epics for yeah. best picture and american beauty does seem like an antidote to that and yeah. it's like okay enough of this gladiator yeah, best picture yeah, yeah. followed by a beautiful mind and you know uh so Keep it, going. what one in 2002 chicago and then lord of the rings oh wow yeah yeah and then uh 2004 was million dollar baby okay so but yeah so like it's it did seem like almost like Shakespeare in Love and American Beauty did sort of seem like the Oscars trying to zig instead of zag. Yeah, and American um, Beauty was a huge mainstream hit. I mean, it was made it over hundred million dollars. It's like mm-hmm. it's like a lot like of these I said, movies. My parents saw it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like a lot of these movies made hundred million dollars that were completely never franchised and not. Se- I mean, there weren't a lot of sequels that year, which is really crazy. And I think that's one of the. I think that's why. 
part of the warmth of the nostalgia for that year is like when you look at that list it's all like oh I know that movie I'm not confusing you with the sequel it's like I, mm-hmm. I know I, oh, like, yeah. I, saw, I remember Notting Hill there was no Notting Hill too it's like I know it's like oh I know Notting Hill I know even like stuff like Bowfinger people are like yeah. like Bowfinger why isn't Bowfinger in your book and I'm like Bowfinger was great there's too much stuff it's like those kind of movies like everything was new and original and I think those do stick with you especially when they arrive kind of at that time mm-hmm. you know yeah um, what are the biggest sequels of Austin Powers well Phantom Menace Toy was, Story 2 Toy Story 2 Austin Powers I mean obviously Phantom Menace but that almost doesn't I feel like that almost doesn't count yeah. it feels just like a total like I mean in a way it was something entirely new <laughs> and interesting but those were the real big ones I don't think there was, there was one or two other ones but it was definitely not a year driven by sequels and it was also when i talked to a lot of the filmmakers and executives like by the end of the 90s like they really were starting to be like sequels and reboots are kind of tacky like we're kind of moving away from that because they'd had all i mean they'd had some big sequels but they'd had all the they'd had all these big remakes and reboots fail like it was in oh, right. all these franchises wild, wild yeah while wild, wild was 99 so it's like that's one of the few reboots but like that's the one i told my parents i was seeing when i was going to see eyes watch <laughs> I, I don't think you were alone in doing that i think i think south Park benefited from like a lot of kids saying they're going to see Wild Wild West. Yeah. I don't think so. I think South Park didn't get the box office it should have. But like, you know, they were making the late '90s like the Alien franchise stalled out. Beverly Hills Cop franchise stalled out. Like, even oh, yeah. even like Lethal something Weapon. Like, Lethal Weapon was like it did okay, but they spent so much money to make Lethal yeah. Weapon four. It's like and like they try to make a Babe movie. So and then there was also Lost in Space and The Odd Couple two. And there's all these TV things that were and right. I think the executives are like we have to actually like we this is kind of gross that we're doing. This. We have to make some new stuff and i think that started especially post titanic where they're like let's 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 make new ideas let's not just because the sequels are batman versus robin was like traumatizing for warner brothers it was like now they weren't actually fighting each other (laughs) oh yeah yeah yeah. Yeah. oh sorry that's right i keep calling it batman versus robin but you know well it should have been actually that would have been a much better movie yeah yeah. batman versus batman versus robin i would have loved that but yeah like batman and robin was like a warner brothers they were like yeah this is a there it's like we all know this is a bad movie like this is not and it didn't do well and i think they were like we this is the golden goose is kind of like walking out the door you know so they i think they felt like they had to do something new or maybe they're just spinning it that way 20 years later to make themselves seem noble (laughs) I think it, I think it actually, I think it speaks to the general distaste for, uh, sequels in like the late nineties that independence day did not get a sequel like yeah. up until what Eventually, a couple yes. years yeah, ago. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and that's a film that made tons of money. And I feel like in certainly in modern thinking, of course that would have a sequel two years later. Yeah. How could it not? Uh, but yeah, they just, uh, it was up until recently. It was a one-off, which is crazy to think about. It's so weird. I've always wondered about that. And I wonder if it was because Will Smith didn't want to do it, or I wonder if the next year Fox was like, "We're putting on this movie Titanic." It's like we don't have to make any movies for five more years. We just made a gazillion billion dollars. It's yeah. like, but yeah, no, certainly like I don't think they were stamping them out, and they certainly weren't like proudly announcing them the day the new the first one comes out. Like we're already moving ahead with part two. That was right. that generation had really had been of executives really kind of had been raised to be like, you know, Godfather two sequel the rest of them it's a little crap <laughs> no. it was still a stigma which is like re- remarkable now when you like when you think of your film going now and i guess yeah i mean if they if they were movie watchers in the 80s it was just 
here's another Superman, here's another mm-hmm. Friday the 13th, here's another Jaws, yeah. Oh, yeah. and just feeling not only our sequels, and it's like, yeah, there's Aliens, hey, yeah. that's a win, uh, but just like, ah, oh, these are really hacky. Yeah, there were punchlines yeah. that you made fun of. It's like it's like the the, the joke in Spaceballs, like Rocky 5000, yeah. it's like, oh, yeah. that was a laugh line because it didn't seem that far off, you know? Back to the Future 2, itself a sequel, has the Jaws yeah, 19. Yeah, 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 no, joke. I mean, they were seen as like a really crass, like they were like Happy Meals, it's like, why are we doing this? You know, it's another sort of, it was seen as kind of the more distasteful element of the industry, I guess. So, well, you said, Tyler, you said we were going to, yeah, I don't know if we, I don't know if we have time now. Well, I but. just want to nominate the year 1946. Mm, okay. Even though I haven't seen Gilda. I haven't seen <laughs> Gilda. Um, but It's a Wonderful Life. Okay. Yeah. The Big Sleep. Mm. John Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast. Mm. The Best Years of Our Lives is mm-hmm. 1946. Pretty great. Uh, a Matter of Life and Death is 1946. Notorious. Mm-hmm. The Postman Always Rings Twice. Uh, David Lean's Great Expectations. That's a good uh, year. Uh, Orson Welles' The Stranger, not his strongest work, but still, still interesting. Good yeah. movie. Orson yeah. Welles uh, made a movie that year. Uh, what's it? Orson Welles made a movie that year. That's notable. Yeah. Um, Robert Seward, Max the Killers, and... Uh, uh, this one's a little bit more obscure, but John Nagalescu's Nobody Lives Forever, starring oh, John Garfield, is mm-hmm. a really cool uh, noir movie. So, I don't know, Tyler, you told me off mic we were going to do that, so I had yeah. 1946 ready as a, as a, as a challenger. That, that whole decade is, I mean, like I said, the 40s, 70s, and 90s, but you know what's a really, I also am really fascinated by 1950, um, because it's like the best, it's like the year where Hollywood is making movies about showbiz, so that's oh, the year sure. Sunset Boulevard, All About Eve, Eve and yeah. In a Lonely Place, oh, but yeah. you also get the aspect Jungle, which is not about Hollywood, which is just absolutely one of my favorite movies yeah. ever. But I'm like, the fact that like in a lonely place, all about Eve and Sunset Boulevard, probably in some theater somewhere, we're all showing around the same time. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, it's amazing to me. Also, um, Rashomon, Flowers of Saint yeah. Francis, yeah. Gun Crazy. Oh yeah, no, that's, that's the, the. I mean, the 40s. I mean, in, in 1950, is still kind of part of the 40s. Like that's a remarkably ripe decade. Yeah. It's like, I can imagine somebody watching All About Eve, Sunset Boulevard, and In a Lonely Place, like all in one weekend. Oh my god! And they're like what depressing, and they, and they come out and they're like, "Does Hollywood like itself at all?" Yeah. No wonder they started thinking, well, "Where are all those communists? Do we have to drive those crazy people out of the country?" Don't they realize how successful they are? Yeah. I mean, gosh, I just watched In a Lonely Place again like two or three months ago, and it's, I put it on with my mom. I was like, "Let's watch this is a really great old Bogart noir." And I was like, "Oh, this is the I forgot how depressing this movie is. That the final two minutes are just oh, it's always I love it, but yeah. it's always fun when." somebody like Bogart who is this you know firmly established Hollywood actor uh, when he was willing to take risks and seem yeah. really unlikable like in uh, the Kane Mutiny I'd say Treasure of the Sierra Madre but especially in a lonely place where his character is just yeah and he was pretty complete yeah. movies too. Yeah. he was okay I mean he really was like he was like these are the movies I want to make are movies yeah. where I play a pretty broken just, guy yeah Almost irredeemable, I yeah. would say. In yeah. a lonely place. Oh, in a lonely place, he is. A, oh, he's yeah. yeah. But when the time he beats the guy up on the side of the road, you're like, this guy is a monster. It's yeah. So it's such a dark movie. Yeah. It, have you ever seen? In a lonely seen place? Oh my god, it's really great. Yeah. You, uh, you'd love that kind of that kind of dark stuff. <laughs> um, so I do think. Well, yeah. So our. Uh, David, I don't. Yeah, I don't think you've actually met him, but um, uh, okay. Stephen Farber, who is uh, my uh, film criticism uh, professor at UCLA, um, he uh, is going to be releasing a book sometime soon. Um, that saying it's called that, 1946 uh, best movie year ever. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know the actual title, but he says 1962, hmm. and uh, and I, I helped him. Uh, I was 
interning for him for a while and uh and so i helped him do some some research and gather some materials and stuff and uh i don't think i agree but it is a pretty amazing wow. year All right, let me write some down okay lawrence of arabia yeah, yeah. cleo from five to seven mm-hmm. the exterminating angel the manchurian candidate to kill a mockingbird jules and jim cape fear the music man dr no Whatever happened to Baby Jane? Yeah, the world's greatest sinner, which is a, no, a specifically terrible movie, but great. Yeah, uh, <laughs> those are all nineteen sixty two. I think uh, Two for the Road is is that year, mm, and yeah, that's yeah. a movie he loves. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's. I think everybody kind of has their their like a year that they really yeah. respond to. I really like seventy five, but I'm a big fan of oh, Nashville. Oh my gosh, I think seventy seventy six is pretty amazing too. Is great. I mean, the seventies. I mean, certainly sixty seven to eighty two. It's like is probably as much as I love the 40s and 90s like that is just if I made a top 100 those those 12 13 yeah. years would absolutely dominate it well 75 it's, is a contender 75 yeah. the best picture nominees are well I want to guess with Nashville Jaws Barry Lyndon uh, Dog, Dog Day Afternoon. Afternoon. Oh, what's the fifth one? Because it's so. What's it's the fifth the, one? It's the was winner. It, was it solid? Oh, it was the one for the Cuckoo's Nest. Right? One for the Cuckoo's Yes. Oh, right. But not solid. Not, not solid. <laughs> no. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, no, no, they nominated that for screenplay, <laughs> but yeah, also yeah. <laughs> uh, My Path on the Holy Grail. Also, oh. a movie that's easily in my top ten of all time. Picnic and Hanging Rock is nineteen seventy five. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. I mentioned Barry Lyndon. Uh, the man. Jean, in, Jean, the man in the glass booth is that year. I okay. believe. Jean oh, Dumont. Uh, oh, yeah. Is 1975. I mentioned Salo. Fox and His Friends is also. Uh, yeah. Um, and there's also Rollerball, which is a terrible movie. <laughs> well, now wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> Rollerball is a terrible movie. Uh, that's a whole different. I mean, I, do, I very much enjoy. I enjoy both Rollerballs. The first one for the movie itself, the second one for the complete behind the scenes drama of, uh, the, of a disastrous John McTiernan production. How, how weird is it that John McTiernan remade two Norman Jewison movies? Because he did the Thomas Crown Affair yeah. and Rollerball. In 990, Thomas Crown Affair. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, nothing, nothing is normal about John McTiernan. I mean, it's like that. <laughs> that's, true. That's, like yeah. the, that's like 18th on the list of weird things about the side of the fact that he just got out of prison a few years ago yeah. for an incredibly uh, convoluted case that I couldn't even, even condense. Yeah. I also I, like that uh, George C. Scott wound up playing two roles uh, originated by uh, Lee J. Cobb. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Wait, oh, yeah. So, yeah, 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 you're right. 12 Angry Men mm-hmm. remake, and what's the other one I'm missing? The Exorcist. Mm. Oh, okay. Yeah. But, I mean, these are all, that's the thing, is that's why this is fun. It's like, and I, you know, I, I've said this a couple of times, and I don't mean it disingenuously. Like, I would love if someone who's really young is like, writes a best movie year about like 2017 or 2018 and makes a really good case because I, yeah. I the one that I love the fact that like when I was younger the canon was pretty much set it was like basically like Citizen Kane Citizen Kane Citizen Kane I love Citizen Kane but like mm-hmm. every year there'd be a big list of the top 100 movies and it would always be almost the same and then there was that weird like at some point it shifted between Citizen Kane and Vertigo and that was like a whole 2012 yeah. yeah yeah but it's like I really love the fact that now people who are much younger than me are making the case for the movies of their generation that maybe I didn't quite get or that I have to take a second look at I I like that a lot I mean I, I and I'm excited people are, are interested in movies enough to argue about them still that makes me very happy um, and so you know if if they want to argue with me on Facebook, that's totally fine. I'm, I'm more than happy to 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 make my case and to listen to theirs. Or, uh, last thing I want to topic <clears throat> on the table, which is best movie year since 1999. Although I feel like 2007 is 2007 kind of is. I think it's 2007 though. I felt I was really down in 2016 about movies till the end of the year, but 2017 I really felt like for the first time 
my friends who were movie nerds who just had kids and couldn't go to the movies anymore were like texting me like, whoa, get out. Whoa, Lady Bird. Yo, have you seen Call Me mm-hmm. By Your Name? Have you seen? It was just like, I did feel like that year a lot yeah. of movies were connecting and I really, really and cool. Phantom Thread was 2017, right? Yeah. Which is, I absolutely love Phantom Thread and yeah. could watch, that's like, that's become Goodfellas now where I'm like, but it's on, we're going to sit down and watch Phantom Thread for two hours. But like, I felt like that was a really, really strong year. I love 2007. Yeah. But I think 2017 was just like, those, I just, I love Lady Bird so much. It made me so happy. I saw it twice in the theater. I saw Get Out multiple times in the theater and I really felt connected to those movies just as an experience of being a moviegoer again. I think that's a great case for 2017. The one I was going to nominate, you might have bested me there, but I was going to nominate 2011. Mm, You've got okay. Tree of Life, Melancholia, A Separation. You've got Your Next, Take Shelter, Margaret. You've got... Um, oh, that's such a good... Wow, You're Next and... and and uh, you're, and, and then Take, all those movies. That's a great. Yeah. It's a really interesting lineup. Yeah. And I, I got like the last Harry Potter movie. I right? like Moneyball more than you do, but I do uh, love Moneyball. Right. You've got the Raid. You've got Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Bernie and Young Adult are both. I think underrated right. movies. Uh, Goon Young Adult's is really good, yeah. Goon is I think one of the best sports movies mm, in the yeah. 21st century. Uh, um, the is, Innkeepers uh, is is a great movie. The aforementioned Project Nim is 2011. I think yeah, uh, so you, uh, 2011 is as far as the US. Haywire. As far as the U.S., I think you've got Certified Copy in 2011. I think okay. it was officially a, 20, a 2010 movie as far okay. as a, a country of origin. But, um, yeah, 2011 is a good year. Alan Collier yeah. and You're Next and, that's a, and Moneyball. It's a pretty good lineup. Like, those are all movies that I saw <laughs> when they came out. I saw them again two years later, and I now I'm like, oh, I'd, I'd like to rewatch all three of those. I mean, yeah. I don't want to put on Alan Collier yeah. just to hang out and kick, kick off my shoes, but I love that movie. I yeah. know. That's one of those Blu-rays that I have, and I'm like, I just see it, and I'm like, not today. It's one so, of these days I'll throw I wish on that. I wish he were not such a nut because I feel so uncomfortable liking his films. But boy, I really dug that, and I watched that, and I was like, "Oh man, that guy should—that's the guy who should make Dune." Like that's—I was like, that was a kind of <laughs> dark sci-fi that like felt really grounded. That yeah, I really loved. Did you see college. the House that Jack built? No, I've not seen it. It's—I'm uh, glad I watched it. Yeah. yeah, but yeah, it's a—it's uh, it's, it's an experience. Yeah, it's tougher hanger. for me to see those with kids because I'm like, oh boy, who's going to walk in on what? But I, it's on my—it's on my list to see for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I do uh, think—I uh, don't know. It's it's tough because I'm trying to think, okay, so is it about the number of movies that are great or like if there are five masterpieces mm. in a certain year, like does that that's make a, it a great year? Is it the way those movies fed what came? I mean, that's like one thing yeah. I like about 99, and not just because I wrote a book on it, but like I did think that if you look at 39 and 69 and 79, like they do kind of all feed into 1999, yeah. and then 1999 creates these movies like The Matrix or Malkovich that wound up, however, in some like big ways or small ways, kind of feeding the next 20 years. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's why I picked it. I mean, that's why I'm now I think of it as like it maybe just sits at that point of history where Hollywood's almost 100 years old, and movies itself almost yeah. 100 years old. It's like, you know, but certainly when you look, when you listen to those 1962 movies, I'm like, oh boy, that would be a really fun year to go to the movies every weekend. Like, and maybe yeah, it's, yeah. I don't know, maybe it's a mix of things, you know? Yeah, I, that, I think that actually is a really interesting thing is like, if you were to just look from one weekend to the next, yeah. could you go to see a movie every week and it's amazing? Yeah, yeah, right. And I'd say yeah. 99 is pretty damn close because you also had the emergence of stuff like American pie. And, oh yeah. Yeah. You know, teen movies were yeah. huge that year and those weren't yeah. my, you well, you guys were that age. So I was, when I wrote the teen movie chapter, I felt a little off balance cause I'm like, these are not my teen movies. Right. Like I, by the time I was 23, I was like, uh, yeah, I don't watch high school movies unless <laughs> yeah. it's Rushmore, the Virgin suicide. Yeah. But I was uh, also very specifically the kind of teenager not watching. You were like, you were like, yeah, movies. you were like, I'm not watching the yeah. latest. Uh, yeah. Like uh, now I want to go back and watch 10 things I hate about you because people my age sure. were into those movies. Oh, say that one's great. That for your generation, that movie is like the response 
response to that movie. It's like, it's like, and I like it. It's, I love the, the two screenwriters are really great. I interviewed them in the book. I, I like that movie. It's very charming, but like that movie, people who are five or six years younger than me, it's like, absolutely. It's their 16 candles. It's their breakfast club. Hmm, they, right. And I totally, I totally get it. Uh, but the love for that movie is really kind of insane. Yeah. Yeah. Which is making me want to revisit. I remember seeing when it came out and not really feeling very strongly either way about yeah. it. Uh, but I was probably, cause I was, I was not uh, in the headspace. Now I love romance movies. Yeah. yeah. Love, uh, See, that kind of stuff. I, at that time I lived in Southern Missouri. So while, while all the other teenagers were watching uh, in, in the rest of the country were watching uh, 10 things I hate about you. Oh, it was all about varsity blues. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, I don't want your life and stuff. Very like weird that. movie. A generally yeah. weird movie. Like I, I really enjoyed rewatching that cause it's, it's like a, such a, there's so many strange things in that film. Like the younger brother who in every scene has like a new religion and you're like, what is this stuff? About? What is this doing? In this movie? Like it's really cool and weird, but I'm like, I have no idea what it's doing in this movie. Yeah. Um, and it's just like, you know, there's also, there's also those, you know, those teen movies came out the year of Columbine and it's like you watch Varsity Blues it came out in January and there's a scene where James Vanderbeek shoots the coach's picture with a shotgun and I'm like oh well you can this is like right before but you would never do this it's like yeah. two months later you could never put that in an American high school movie for the next oh, 10-15 yeah. years it's like those movies really capture like that pre kind of Columbine high school life and it's when you watch them now they're very they're all the more poignant because of that you know well, this has been great. Yeah. Uh, we ended up talking almost exclusively about 1999. But, uh, oh, sure. Why not? Why not? Yeah. That's what the book's about. <laughs> yeah. So um, uh, real quick, of course, you can find us at BattleshipRetention.com. There's all sorts of movie reviews. My review of Endgame is up this week. Um, and my review, hopefully by the time you're hearing this, I'll post my review of Ray Finds the White Crow. Oh, yeah. Uh, not worth seeing, but read, read my review. <laughs> um, uh, that's at Battleship Retention. You can email us at David at BattleshipRetention.com or Tyler at BattleshipRetention.com. Uh, check out the Patreon at patreon.com slash battleship pretension. Uh, this week we did our TV, TV journal. Mm-hmm. We got something else coming up in a couple days. Uh, let's see. I'm on Twitter at Davy pretension. Tyler's on Twitter at Tyler pretension. Real quick. Anything to plug for more than one lesson? Uh, yeah. My writer, uh, Reed went to, uh, the screening for Avengers Endgame, And okay. so he wrote a very in-depth, uh, article about it and, uh, was, I'd say primarily favorable about it, but uh, kind of on board with you in okay. a lot of ways. Uh, Brian, what do you have? Uh, where can people find you? Uh, I'm a Twitter at Brian Raftery, and I just obnoxiously tweet to promote my book right now. So it's uh, you, you can look it up and then mute me for the next two weeks. I don't blame you. <laughs> and uh, the book is, uh, I mean, it's everywhere. It's on Amazon. It's called Best Movie Year Ever, How 99 Blew Up the Big Screen. And uh, yeah, it's fun. And I'm writing stuff next coming month for The Ringer and Vulture and other places. So I'm, I just use Twitter at this point to make bad puns or promote myself. Sure. Either, I don't know which one of those is more shameful honestly yeah. uh, the, probably the puns um, but that's that's where you can find me yeah and this book by the way the book is excerpted you can read the fight club chapter on the ringer you can read the matrix chapter on wired.com uh, three kings is on slate and the wise white chef chapter is on vulture so if you want to read all four chapters for free and then not buy the book okay i get it but it's you know you can um you can check it out the book there if you want to um yeah, uh, don't you hate when you make it what you think is a really great pun on Twitter and it gets, like, nothing? Uh, I make puns all the time in a house where everyone just frowns at my puns, so making okay. bad puns that no one wants to hear is kind of my, it's kind of my thing, yeah. I tweeted, I did the, like, period at thing so someone can, everyone can see. I tweeted at Nicholas Holt the other day, are you talking to me? <laughs> That's pretty good. No response. Nothing not, at all? Not, not, a couple of people were like, "That's pretty good," but uh, I got nothing. Uh, I, I, sh- I should be on fucking. Uh, I don't know. I, I should be featured on. 
I don't know. Well, best week ever. That doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, no, that was a good. Well, if you like puns, about a couple months ago, I went through all my circa nine nine EWs and I tweeted out the best headline puns from that year. Oh. EW was the greatest pun uh, resource at that point. So there are some really good bad puns in the late nineties that I will direct you toward that are pretty delightful. It's the only good thing I've ever done on Twitter is tweeting out a bunch of old EW puns. So, oh, I can't wait yeah. to find that. Thank you for being sure, here. Thank you so much, fun guys. Yeah, I appreciate this is a blast. Um, thank you at home for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 